primary reason I want to do it is to screen for colon cancer. You know, colon cancer is number three cause of cancer in the United States, number three cause of cancer death in the United States, and that's on the rise. But it's very treatable if you find it early. So doing screening colonoscopies is really why I got into this and, and my passion for doing it. Welcome, everyone, to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Hey, podcast nerds. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. If this is your first time listening, then welcome to the show. This is the February episode with Dr. Davis Blanton. And much to the delight of my classmate and friend and vehement critic of the length of these episodes, Remy Boudreau, this is a shorter episode with the interview portion actually clocking in at less than 25 minutes long. How about that? Short month, short episode, yes. Let's get it. The reason for this was actually because Dr. Blanton and I discussed a kind of specific topic, which is being a family doctor who does endoscopy and colonoscopy. It's always good to understand your opportunities as a primary care physician or any doctor. So if you're in medical school, residency training, Uh, or even out there as a practicing physician. It's not too late to find aspects of medicine that you are passionate about and go and get trained and add tools to your toolbox. All right, I want to welcome to the show our very first sponsor and a fitting one for today's topic. This episode is brought to you by Groan's Disease, G-R-O-A-N-S Disease. Visit groansdisease.com, the only website dedicated to making bad, punny dad jokes about inflammatory bowel conditions. Sign up now for 87% off your first month's subscription to their Groans Disease weekly newsletter. Tell them you heard about it here on this podcast by using the promo code PCP87. Visit groansdisease.com. That's groansdisease.com. All right, thanks to our new sponsor. Let's get to the episode now. So even with the shorter format, we hit a lot of subtopics within the topic of endoscopy as a family doctor. I sat down with Dr. Blanton in his office in Fort Collins, Colorado, to discuss his initial intrigue into the world of endoscopy, gaining experience in those procedures, the differences between being an endoscopist, in the rural versus more resource-rich setting. The idea of screening for and treating colon cancer and other diseases of the GI tract. And towards the end, we discuss the financial implication of performing these procedures. Dr. Blanton helps us understand how we can use RVUs or relative value units to appreciate the financial benefit for the provider. Overall, you can see he's really passionate about screening and preventing colon cancer and maintaining continuity with his patients. So a reminder, as always, to follow Primary Care Podcast on Instagram. 
Leave a review or a comment on your podcast player. Spread the word. Tell a friend, family member, classmate, co-worker that they might enjoy this podcast. And uh, I thank you very much. All right, let's get into it, so to speak. Here is my interview with Dr. Davis Blanton. Blanton. I'm a, I'm a family doctor, um, and I'm a faculty member here at the Fort Collins Family Medicine Residency Program. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, a little, little small town um, called Shelby, and um, went to uh, Vanderbilt for undergrad, taught high school for a couple of years in rural Arkansas, and then went to medical school back in North Carolina um, with the goal of becoming a rural primary care physician. Um, after med school, came here to residency in Fort Collins, and then went to rural Idaho, practiced for a few years um, in kind of a, a smaller uh, critical access hospital, and um, moved back here in 2018 to join the faculty, because um, I always like to say it's because my wife wanted to be closer to her family when, when uh, kids were around, but it's, I think she just said, hey, we're moving back to Colorado, and I said yes, dear. <laughs> right, uh, of course. So, uh, so I've been back here for three and a half years on faculty. I'm the clerkship director, um, hence I get to work with you. And, uh, and then one of my, my passions in primary care is, is doing endoscopy and, and colon cancer screening. And so that's what we're talking about. Definitely. Um, yeah, it seems like that's one of your passions. And also teaching seems to be a passion of yours. You were a, a teacher. You did Teach for America. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I was in, I was in Teach for America out of high school. Um, I got placed in in rural Arkansas, a town of Forest City, um, which was the you know local metropolis, I think it had maybe a thousand people to live there. Nice. Uh, but it was a good uh, a, a good experience for me to realize that um, I think that's where I first came to face to face with you know healthcare shortage, um, access to care issues, and um, that's what motivated me to go into rural primary care. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then and then teaching has always been a part of my life. My mom was a teacher. My mm-hmm. my first job I can remember was being like an assistant teacher at summer camps for her preschool. Um, and then, uh, it's just always been something I'm interested in. I think if teaching paid more, you know, I'd probably be still a high school teacher. I loved, I taught chemistry and physical science. I loved it. Cool. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's awesome. Um, and I love your, your progression through, um, you know, being a teacher, going back to med school, then residency, and then going out back to a, a rural, place um but let's so let's get into a, a, a little bit of that did you have um any endoscopy experience during your training during either med school or residency i guess i can just go in chronological order sure yeah there, there was some um i think i think the idea really came to me um you know what the opportunity was for primary care endoscopy was my start of third year in medical school i went to the the AAFP National Conference in Kansas City, um, and I interacted with some providers from the residency program in Cheyenne, Wyoming, um, and they, at that time, had some family physicians as well as general surgeons on their faculty who were teaching endoscopy to the residents. Um, coming from the East Coast, uh, where family medicine generally has a more narrow practice, I was, you know, excited about that opportunity. Um, so, I set up a clerkship with them, and my my fourth year started my fourth year of med school. I, I went to Cheyenne and I did rotation, and 
Um, got kind of my first hands-on experience doing endoscopy there. Um, and then uh, I guess I was hooked. Uh, during during residency, um, I had less opportunity to get exposed to it. There was a, did a rural rotation out in Julesburg, Colorado, um, with a Dr. Regeer. Um, and he's a family physician who does does um, full spectrum kind of critical access medicine, and, mm-hmm. and I got to do some colonoscopies there. Um, I was able to to shadow some of the GI physicians here just to get exposed more to the procedure and what the pathology looks like. Um, and so when I graduated residency, um, I had done and observed and had been involved with probably fifty endoscopic procedures, both upper and lower um, uh, endoscopy, and then. You know, when I when I moved to rural Idaho, um, we didn't there were, there were no GI physicians there. Right. Uh, and one of my mentors there um, uh, was doing scopes and had his entire career, and um, kind of said, "Hey, you've got you've got a good start on this. Let's let's get you trained up and get you doing them." Um, so, you know, I did another uh, fifty or seventy five procedures with him. Uh, and then took off on my own. Um, cool. Yeah. So you said about 50 procedures either performing or watching during residency or up until graduating residency, and then about 50 to 75 after that until you were on your own. Is that right? Yep, yep. And so, you know, depending on where where you go practice, the ability to get the privileges depends on on, on that f- facility where you're trying to do it. You know, mm-hmm. most places require, uh, uh, like a hundred colonoscopies, um, okay. and, um, 50 to a hundred EGDs depending on, on where the site is. Um, and so I mean, most of my, my experience with, um, uh, Jim Gardner, who was my mentor up there was, was doing, getting those numbers, being able to get those numbers to get my own privileges to be able to do the procedures. Right. Mm-hmm. So when uh, when you were done training and then you were a rural family doc, just kind of mostly clinic-based, or were you also working in the hospital, or what was your what was your daily life like? And I want, I'm asking that because I want to set up kind of the context in which you're doing endoscopy. Are you doing it once a week or every day, or how, how does that work in, in the context of your uh, clinical practice? Sure. Yeah. So, so when I was there in Idaho, we had, um, it, it was a unique setup. We were in an outpatient clinic, um, that was owned by one health system, but I was connected to a hospital owned by another health system. And mm-hmm. I worked at both. Um, I also was connected to the rural track of another residency, the family medicine residency of Idaho. So, uh, I was also part-time teaching there as well. Mm-hmm. Ru- my routine schedule was, um, I did uh, um, three and a half days of clinic, of outpatient general family medicine clinic, where I was seeing, you know, patients of all ages, mm-hmm. um, including continuing prenatal care and, and doing obstetrical care. Um, and then a half day a week, I was doing uh, procedures, uh, a GI procedures, so endoscopy or, or colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, every uh, probably four to somewhere between four and six weeks, I would be on a, um, a hospital week. So I would cover the inpatient service. And that was also when I'd be supervising the residents in the, in the hospital and the clinic. So it was like teaching and, and inpatient medicine. Right. So I did a little bit of everything. Um, but, but essentially had a half day a week of, of GI procedures, which is what I continue to do now. Okay. That's still your practice. Mm-hmm. 
Um, uh, how many per half day were you always filled up, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, when you first start, you're certainly slow doing this procedure um, mm -hmm. and can, you know, maybe do four procedures in a half day. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm up now. I generally do somewhere between six and eight. Uh, just kind of depends on if I have a resident with me who's learning. Mm -hmm. um, depends on the schedule of the week. If there's, you know, an upper endoscopy is a little bit shorter than doing a colon, so I can stack a few more of those procedures. But that, that's in my general practice. Right. And you were saying you both do screening and diagnostic uh, colonoscopy and endoscopy. So you're uh, taking biopsies and what, what else goes on in, uh, in a scope procedure? Um, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we do, um, you know, those procedures for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Primarily, the primary reason I want to do it is to screen for colon cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, colon cancer is number three cause of cancer in the United States, number three cause of cancer death in the United States, and that's on the rise. Mm -hmm. But it's very treatable to find it early. So yep. doing screening colonoscopies is really why I got into this and, and my passion for doing it. Um, but I do diagnostic as well. So if someone has um, you know rectal bleeding, if they, if they have um, hematemesis, if they have epigastric pain, you know, whatever it might be, yep. um, that's an indication for, a, for an endoscopy, then, then we do those. Um, so that includes, um, uh, sure, um, snare polypectomies, um, you know, colon biopsies, upper endoscopies might include, you know, biopsies to screen for celiac disease, for peptic ulcer disease, for H. pylori infections. Um, you're looking for Barrett's esophagus or other kinds of esophagitis. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, pretty much, pretty much anything that involves. Yeah. Cool. Are you ever doing any um, pH monitoring? Um, you know, I, I forget the exact terminology, but there's a device that people mm -hmm. can uh, get placed in their esophagus to monitor for pH in certain uh, situations. Uh, is that something that you do as well? Yeah. So, so what you're talking about is like pH impedance and, impedance, and looking at yes. esophageal manometry and things. There, those are sort of additional tests to look for um, how significant is someone's um, acid reflux, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, is that causing or put them at risk for other complications, yeah. um, particularly in the setting of like a hiatal hernia where they might need to consider surgery to fix it. Uh, I generally do not do those procedures, um, only because, um, uh, the equipment, you know, the equipment's expensive, but if I'm not doing that much of it, it's, it's not really, uh, you know, feasible to keep around, but there's a nice big GI group in town where I send them if they need to get those done. Right. Yeah. And well, so that works here in Fort Collins with a town of about 160 or so, 170,000 people, maybe not so much in a thousand person town in Arkansas or sure. Idaho where there's not the GI uh, facilities and, and personnel. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, a you know, a, a barrier you make them up with in a rural community and and it's yeah. not impossible for a family physician to be able to do that at all uh just you just have to decide if that's something you're going to be using enough of to to warrant you know the equipment and things right i'm glad you said that because we can kind of pivot towards that topic of kind of these practical matters um of you know what equipment do you need as a family doc if you're going to start up your own um, endoscopy portion of your practice. Um, what other considerations do you want to be thinking about in terms of reimbursement and your time spent and your effort? Um, and then on top of that, you know, if you're going to be taking this uh, as like a, a project that you're starting on your own and making, uh, you know, all the uh, 
procedures happen yourself or if you're going to, um, you know, rent time or uh, lease space in a surgical center. Um, can you talk about some of those topics? Yeah, um, it it's kind of hard to generalize because it certainly all depends on what's available in the community you go to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, let's let's maybe follow a, a patient path from getting that initial evaluation or needing a colonoscopy or, or an EGD. Yep. Um, you know, the first thing to line up is going to be who's going to do the scheduling, who's going to manage the pre-op consults, who's going to manage the prep instructions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, luckily we have a care management team here at our clinic that helps with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, designing all the um, prep protocols, you can you can steal them from any number of places. I, um, I've kind of written all of ours here, but I, but I, you know, took a lot of it from where I practiced before. And then I took a lot of it from, um, you know, just what's on the internet or other GI providers or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so tons of resources for that. Um, day of procedure, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to be sure your patients can get a ride to and from, you're going to have to consider anesthesia, um, the, kind of standard of care now has become more general anesthesia using propofol instead of conscious sedation using something like Versed and fentanyl, which is what we did when I first started practice. Right. Um, and, and that's great. Um, but propofol is general anesthesia and, and legally usually requires either CRNA or an, or an anesthesiologist to administer that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a, a, you know, another thing you have to be aware of. You can do it under conscious sedation still, there's no reason not to, um, mm-hmm. but it depends on where you practice and what those, what those guidelines look like. So, right. you know, is anesthesia available? That's another question. Physical equipment, you're going to have to have, um, you know, you got to have the colonoscope, the upper endoscope. Um, you need a, a light source, kind of the, the, um, fiber optic equipment to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, suction, um, saline, biopsy materials. Bio, yeah, you got to have all the snares and the forceps. And um, if you're going to do more more di- additional procedures like hemorrhoid banding or variceal banding, you're going to need a bander. Mm-hmm. Um, if you decide to do dilations, you know you might need those um, esophageal dilators or right. balloons, depending on how you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. So is is a gen is the standard uh, family doc who is going to be doing these procedures? Are they buying their own equipment, or does this come with uh, you know, leasing space or leasing time in a, a surgical center, an ambulatory, uh, you know, uh, outpatient surgical center. Type yeah, thing. it would it would be pretty expensive to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never done that. The the two places I've practiced endoscopy, one I, um, you know, had privileges in a hospital. Everything was already set up. I was just kind of having space there i had privileges and i just did them there you did the it hospital at a hospital. Owned on the equipment yep okay and here i work at an ambulatory surgery center um that also had all the equipment um and they uh they incur the cost of you know maintaining it and cleaning it and um keeping the supplies and and then of course they they bill that to the patients you know when they when, when i do a procedure if i if i use whatever equipment i use then then there's some cost that build to the insurance or to the patients directly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, certainly if you're starting from scratch, it's going to be an expensive endeavor. Yeah. Um, now there are lots of, there are lots of ways to get, um, um, kind of used and recertified equipment. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you can get last year's scope model, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. and there's tons of facilities that are doing that. Um, so there are ways to do it. 
uh, I, I don't have much experience in mm -hmm. that. But uh, for you, you kind of showed up here and said, hey, I do endoscopies. Here's my uh, credentials. Uh, and you went to your nearest surgical, ambulatory surgical center and said, can I be part of your team and I'll be here half day a week and and let's sign a contract? Or how does that part work? Yeah, yeah. So it, I, I got sort of lucky. I came back here um, and there was actually another um, family physician here in town who had been doing endoscopy up until about a year before I moved back. Mm -hmm. um, and then he decided to change his practice and, and primarily focus on sports medicine. And so um, he stopped doing that and, and the surgery center where I now practice was looking for someone essentially to use the equipment. They had all the equipment. It had been sitting on a shelf for a year. Um, and so they were able to get it all recertified. And um, then I was able to kind of jump right in. Uh, and, and so I think it just worked out for me. Now, I don't, um, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not employed by that system at all. And so I just sort of have privileges and I go there and do the scopes and they do the the facility billing and and then my employer does the provider billing um and uh so I, i'm not like bought into it it just mm -hmm. i just go there and do the scopes it's kind of nice right that is nice because i know some at least gi docs i'm assuming this uh, uh applies to a family physician as well uh, if they rent space or rent time they have to bring a certain amount of patients in or bring a certain amount of revenue into a surgical center. Um, am I, is that, is that true? Or, uh, that's yeah. Yeah. It all, and, and it all yeah. depends on, I mean, there are as many models as there are facilities, you know? Right. Um, so there's another surgery center here in town and, and the large GI group in town here are actually like part owners of that. Um, mm -hmm. and so yes, they bring in some revenue to it and they also get revenue out of it because they're part owners. Right. Um, um, another GI provider here in town does all of his procedures at the hospital and he's employed by the hospital. So it, there, like I said, there, there's as many models as there are endoscopists. Um, and it's just going to change depending on where you are and what you want your practice to look like. Right. Um, so yeah, let's kind of land this plane by talking about some financial matters. Cause I know that you mentioned to me when we were speaking previously that, um, that you said, that's not a, really a big consideration of yours because that's just not your mindset of trying to maximize your your uh, in, income in that way by doing this job. Um, but what are some of the financial considerations that uh, somebody who's looking to get into endoscopy, whether it be a, a family doc listening to this or any any physician, you mentioned that general surgeons are also um, doing endoscopy as well, but. Uh, Somebody maybe an aspiring um, family doc who wants to get into uh, this line of work. What what are they thinking about in terms of how their time is going to be spent and how much reimbursement it's going to uh, get them? Sure. Uh, so the the it's hard to talk exact dollars, just like everything else in healthcare. It's it's all it's all very nebulous. Yes. Just sort of unfortunate. That's a whole other topic. Um, but we can talk in terms of like work RVUs, you know, so, okay. uh, um, so the general reimbursement model for most of medicine now is still built around, um, you know, relative value units. Um, and for example, uh, and, and sort of lower level office visit, like a nine, nine, two, one, three A&M code, 
um, is is like a 0.9 RVU, so you know almost one relative value unit. Mm-hmm. A 99214, so a slightly more complex visit is 1.5 RVUs. Um, endoscopic procedures range anywhere from about 2.5 to 4.5 RVUs, depending on what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, like a colonoscopy with a, with snare polypectomies is going to be at, at the upper range of that. Um, uh, and just a routine EGD with biopsies to rule out H. pylori um, is going to be at the lower end of that. Um, but... You know, if you do the math, say you average four RVUs per procedure and you do six and a half day, that's 24 work RVUs. I mean, that's the same as seeing like 16 level four office visits, right? right. In yeah. a half day. Yeah. So it it certainly makes up for the half day you spend doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little beyond that because, you know, some of the, if you do a pre-op visit, um, that might take a clinic visit from you um and depending on the insurance that's either billed separately or is lumped into the into the procedural code oh so it's like somebody's coming to you they say i have rectal bleeding or whatever else and then you schedule them for a colonoscopy and you do that colonoscopy then you don't really get uh you don't get to bill separately or you know um, yeah well so in that in the example you gave like if they came with that you would get you would get to bill a separate visit because you're making the clinical decision to get the colonoscopy. But uh-huh. let's say one of your partners referred someone to you for a screening colonoscopy and you are just meeting with them to talk about the procedure and the uh, prep instructions and so on. Then that's built in and part of it rather right. than being its own billable visit. Exactly. Or if you decide, um, you know, to have the patient back afterwards to talk about the results, you know, that's going to be a, like built, that's going to be lumped into the procedure because it's sort of a post-op follow-up mm-hmm. visit. So if you do though, you know that can take away some of the that additional production. But, but um, you know, there's there's pretty good um, broad literature on on primary care docs who do endoscopy mm-hmm. generally do perform at the upper end of you know the average work RVUs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so it is it is lucrative to do it. Um, but as you said, I mean that's certainly not. Not the reason I do it, and not not that I would, I'd be happy to take more money if the system wanted sure. to pay me more for it. But, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, as of now, I I just do it mostly for the um, for the continuity and to and to screen for cancer because that's that's my real goal with this. Cool. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a quite the scourge uh, in the modern world, <laughs> and it's uh, you know more and more prevalent. In fact, we just decreased relatively recently the uh age of uh, first screening for colonoscopy from 50 to 45 yeah yeah and i mean that was really based on some um you know the american cancer society has been recommending that for a few years and then mm-hmm. you're right the uspstf just kind of agree with that guideline it is a it is a level b recommendation from them so the evidence is not quite as strong as age 50 to 75 and i think time will tell um you know, do we need to screen everybody? Do we need to screen certain populations? As we do more of it, we'll we'll see. Um, but certainly, we're already starting to do that, and and I've you know I've had no issues getting coverage for screening colonoscopies at from forty five to fifty, which is good. Um, uh, and there's there's many years of data from the fifty to seventy five um, group that doing the screening colonoscopies, catching cancer early. You know, we we do save the healthcare system 
you know, untold amounts of money mm-hmm. and save lives in the process, which is probably more important than saving the money. Very cool. That's a good note to go out on. So thank you so much for your time and uh, really appreciate talking to you about this uh, specific world that you're in. Cool. Thanks, Ross. All right. Pretty cool to talk to a family doc about one specific thing that they do on actually just a half a day a week. I believe is what he was saying uh, his schedule is. Um, But it's a pretty big deal in terms of uh, how it can transform your practice and how it can transform patients' lives, how he does it with continuity of care with his patients, and how he saves the healthcare system untold amounts of dollars, which is always a good thing. So that's reassuring for our future. And it's kind of an exciting prospect in the life of any young learner or maybe even a practicing physician. So I got a couple of episodes coming up here that I'm really excited about, and I just want to get you guys excited about them as well. One is going to be about telehealth. One's going to be more focused on direct primary care. Another is with a coding expert uh, talking about the business of medicine. I'm really excited for all three of those. So please keep sending guests my way, the primary care podcast at gmail.com. I want to spe- uh, send a special thank you to groansdisease.com, our new sponsor, and thank you everybody for listening. That was just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Pizzazz. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized. Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires and the stories well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be walk talk and throw stuff all grown up i got a job now and showing up i'm sleep deprived i'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time and then i met you lovely and smooth you quickly removed my modern man's blues i want to celebrate every breath that i take because i'm afraid i'm dreaming and i don't want to wait so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? younger i met god and i hugged her she said hey baby instead of getting lost within how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin stop begin let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road going inch by inch don't sprint take it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets
it's complex Don't think, just do it first It was simpler when the uterus was so baby Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know The uterus was my universe the uterus was my universe. The uterus was All my conversation universe. and information exchanged and contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. No doctor patient relationship is formed. So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby,